Joining KV today is Ariana Simpson, an early stage investor and founder of the fund Anonymous Partners, which invests in digital assets in blockchain-based companies. Now, here's your host, KV. Hey, Ariana, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So glad to be talking to you. I have so many questions for you. Uh, maybe you can start out for our listeners that don't know you. Talk a little bit about your background. I'm an investor. I've been an investor full-time for the last uh, several years. I currently manage two funds, one which my business partner and I raised a couple years back, which is an early stage uh, generalist venture seed fund, and a second one, which is a cryptocurrency focused fund. And we invest both in coins and tokens, as well as in uh, equity of blockchain based companies. Gotcha. Have you always been an investor? What's your background before that? Before that, I've been in, in various places in the tech world. So I spent some time at Facebook where I worked in global marketing solutions with some of the biggest um, CPG companies who were uh, basically buying Facebook ads. And then I moved over to BitGo once I uh, got bitten by the cryptocurrency bug. BitGo is the, uh, the wallet and I think they have a lot more stuff now, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so they were kind of one of the first companies, if not the first company to commercialize multi-signature wallets which really have at the core the idea of wanting to avoid having a single point of failure when you're managing your cryptocurrencies. And they were uh, they started out with kind of a, a wallet that anyone could use um, and then built a series of APIs, which now power the back end of a lot of different crypto businesses like exchanges, other wallets and things like that. Awesome. Could, could I ask you, I mean, I talk, I talk to quite a few people and I often hear about, you know, pivots in careers when people quote unquote get, get bitten by the crypto bug, as you put it just now, or, uh, you know, how did you, you know, what was that time or how did you hear of crypto? What made you sort of change paths a little bit and focus on crypto? Well, I spent some time traveling around Africa, including a trip uh, to Zimbabwe. And while I was there, I was there kind of a few years after the worst of their hyperinflation. Basically, what happened is the um, president at the time, Robert Mugabe, decided to effectively recklessly print money in order to pay off his military cronies. And what this caused was rampant hyperinflation. So at its peak, the currency was devaluing by 50% on a daily basis, which obviously created enormous economic problems, which took years to remedy. So when I was there, this was early 2013, um, the country was just starting to kind of recover from that and had actually switched over to the US dollar in order to stabilize things. So when I got interested in all of that, once I came back to the United States, a friend of mine who was listening to me talk about monetary policy and kind of related considerations was like, hey, Bitcoin might be uh, interesting to you given all these things you're talking about. And so I ended up reading the white paper and then basically became hooked. And uh, eventually decided that I was I was too intellectually curious about that in particular to want to stay at Facebook, um, and so I ended up going to to BitGo. Very interesting. So, what, what do you think? I mean, as you've kind of gone through a, a few cycles, you know, with with the cryptocurrency, the 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 bust and the bubble and whatever you want to call it. I mean, we've been through a few. I mean, people were saying uh, crypto winter, and now there was crypto spring. And the last few days, you know, Twitter has all kinds of new names for what's going on. I mean, are you still a believer in Bitcoin and or other tokens or coins? Or what are your thoughts on the space at this moment of time? I think there's definitely room for um, both Bitcoin and a number of other digital assets. 
I think at the end of the day, they will fundamentally serve different purposes. So right now, Bitcoin has really become kind of this digital gold that is A, representing a majority of the crypto market, but B, um, kind of one of the more stable assets, although stability is all relative in, in the crypto space still these days in terms of price. And on the on the other side, um, you know, there's been this emergence of a number of, well, at this point, a couple thousand altcoins, as they're known, as in like alternative to Bitcoin, which are really designed to have a different purpose typically. So some of them do want to kind of attack the general purpose money market, but in other cases, they want to allocate resources. So for example, some of these networks are not just trying to be a payments network, but they actually are used to provision some kind of scarce digital resource like storage space or computation or bandwidth. And so in those networks, the token is used to basically buy and sell those services. And so that is fundamentally a completely different use case than what you would use Bitcoin for. And so I think, you know, that just goes to show that at the end of the day, you can have a number of different crypto assets, which are really not competitive with each other, given that they serve such a different role. Sure. No, completely understand. And as far as, and I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate, I guess, uh, as far as Bitcoin. So, you know, people look at it and, and, and call it a store of value, payment mechanism. Maybe it will be one, maybe it is one today. I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, is it useful for anything? Is it a is it truly a store of value? I mean, it, it seems to be going up and down and people could invest and hold that as their digital portfolio and whatnot. Or could it be a payment? I mean, could one live without the other? Could it just be a store of value without ever having a use case? Well, I think it it already does have a use case. So, you know, the Bitcoin network often does a uh, billion dollars in transactions a day. So I think in terms of that, um, it already has a use case. Now, is the use case going to be payments? Uh, probably not. I think, frankly, we've seen that the network, as it currently stands at least, is not able to support the volume of transactions that you would need in order for it to be competitive with, say, Visa or um, something like that. But what we are seeing is a people are developing technology to build basically additional capacity for transaction processing into the protocol or build it really like, one layer above so like layer two exactly yeah so the lightning network obviously is the the one of the better known examples of that there are a number of others so that technology is being developed but then i think you also have to consider that for example gold is obviously worth well depending on which estimates you go with but between seven and a half and eight trillion more or less and, you know, nobody's using gold as a payments network. So I think there are a lot of different ways that Bitcoin can end up being valuable. And it doesn't necessarily have to be as uh, a pure play transaction network. Sure. But gold, uh, and I thought about this the other day, gold has gone through an evolution. I mean, it was used purely as a payment uh, network, you know, if you want to call it that back then. But then it evolved as being a reserve currency and, and a denomination for fiat. And, and now it's pretty much just a store of value. I'm, I'm not sure if countries, or, you know, central banks still use it at all. They, they may be in some places. But so it evolved, whereas Bitcoin kind of skipped that involvement and has become, is trying to become something similar to that. I mean, is that possible, do you think? Meaning, do I think it, it could replace gold? Uh, replace or or be um, as widely accepted because gold is like the safety you know commodity for for fluctuating markets a lot of times and as I said it, you know I, I feel like gold has evolved from you know from being a payment mechanism to a reserve to whatever it is today a commodity that's valuable whereas Bitcoin has never been anything but just a 
you know, and, and I think the, a lot of the funds that we see transfer, I mean, these are speculative transactions. These are hardly ever payments for anything. So, so it has skipped that payment piece of involvement uh, altogether for now, at least. Right. But I don't think it's really necessary for it to ever be there in order for it to actually be quite useful. I mean, I can collect art or other valuable assets and I'm never going to use them for payments, but nonetheless, you know, they're worth many millions of dollars. So I think at the end of the day, it's really that it's important that it have some use case, but the payments one doesn't necessarily have to be the primary one. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I've just spent some time thinking about this. I think it's, it's a really interesting topic. And I, I'm a big believer in Bitcoin, probably above everything else. I wanted to ask you about the other stuff, like the altcoins, the currencies. I mean, what, what are your, what are the most promising ones that you've been looking at, thinking about, or, or, or maybe what areas do you think them adding the most value to our lives? Well, I think what's happening in the decentralized finance world is really exciting. The ecosystem that's being built up on top of Ethereum, I think is, you know, we're still in those super early days. Most of this didn't exist, you know, even a little over a year ago. But just the fact that you can kind of manage your own money, you can really have access to goods and services that you wouldn't be able to have if you were having to use kind of a traditional financial institution. So for example, I think what Maker has enabled in terms of allowing people to take out basically loans against their uh, collateral, which currently is limited to Ether, but very shortly should be a number of other crypto assets as well. Um, that's very cool. And it wouldn't be possible, you know, you can't go to to Chase or Fidelity or any of these folks and say, hey, I've got a million dollars in Ether. I'd really like to have, you know, a 10K loan because I need to do X with it. Um, can you do that? You know, there's no way that they would underwrite that. And so the fact that people can do that and because everything is is held in smart contract, they can be automatically liquidated in the event that that, that needs to happen. I think all of that provides a really interesting glimpse into where we may be heading in terms of the financial system. And obviously not everyone is going to be using decentralized financial products in the near term, but I think we are starting to see some really interesting activity. And it's also worth noting that it's happening at meaningful size, right? So Maker at this point, for example, has issued hundreds of millions of dollars worth of these kind of self loans. And I think that's a good counterpoint to the fact that a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, like, is anyone actually using anything in crypto? And, you know, certainly overall usage numbers aren't huge, but A, they're growing quickly and B, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars is, is not trivial in terms of actual usage. Yeah, I, I agree with you that DeFi is one of those places that is actually very, very interesting. Uh, but they don't use, I mean, other than this Ether, they don't really use other uh, I mean, they don't have like the, 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 the space doesn't have a token of its own per se. And most of the companies that decentralized finance companies that are in the space are sort of facilitators of the decentralization of either lending or other, other aspects. What, what are your thoughts on, you know, the coins that we have out there, the altcoins or the, the, the currencies that are out there, uh, you know, on, on coin market cap, you know, I don't know how many of them, thousands, hundreds, whatever it may be. I mean, what are your thoughts on those? Are, are those interesting as to you as an investor or, or as, a, as a person, I guess? Some of them are and a lot of them are not. I would say there's certainly a, you know, a handful of really strong teams and projects who are building networks that actually have a reason to exist that, like I said, are serving a fundamentally different purpose than what Bitcoin is, for example. There's not a ton of them, but they do exist. And I think it's important that we keep, um, you know, pushing the envelope in terms of saying, okay, what else can we build here? How can this evolve? Because um, there is, I think, uh, some movement within the uh, the community to say, oh, well, you know, 
we're Bitcoin maximalists, like it's going to be Bitcoin and nothing else. And I think if you look at the history of technology or really, you know, innovation in general, it's very rare to have the first thing, the first version as the definitive version. And so while I think there are some key differences here, given that, you know, Bitcoin is a technology, but it's also a new form of money. And so money kind of has, has some different and unique properties relative to how technology usually evolves. But it's still really, um, I think it's a bit naive to think, oh, well, you know, we've got, got Bitcoin, so our work here is done. Um, and fortunately, I, you know, I'm seeing tons and tons of great teams who are really working on making the technology better and more scalable and, you know, just, just generally improving what's been built and coming up with entirely novel concepts. And so, you know, I'm excited to see what, what is built over the next couple of years in the space. Cool. Thank you for that. What about your, your investing? Let's talk about that. I mean, I, I looked at your page and you've invested into various kinds of companies. Can you tell me what your thesis is? I mean, outside of like the blockchain investments? Sure. One of my, you know, I have a number of kind of core theses. One of them is that I felt that since Bitcoin originated as kind of fundamentally a payments network, this kind of digital asset, which was more more towards gold, um, that a lot of the initial success that the space was going to see was going to be in financial applications. And, you know, I mentioned those in juxtaposition to something like, um, you know, identity or some of the other use cases that I think blockchains will eventually help solve. But, uh, you know, my sense has, has been for a long time that that was really going to be something that was happening more like, you know, 10 years out rather than now. Um, and, you know, fortunately so far that seems to be, be playing out uh, as true in the sense that, um, as I mentioned, a lot of the interesting activity in this space right now is happening in the decentralized finance community. So that's kind of one one thing that's been been a driving force for me as an investor. What about outside of blockchain? Just you know, other other areas. Are you interested in other spaces? Yeah, absolutely. So I've done quite a bit of uh, investing in the autonomous vehicle space. I would say after cryptocurrency, that's probably my favorite in terms of what I find intellectually interesting. So I've invested in a couple of self-driving trucking companies, um, a self-driving construction equipment company, and a few more. You know, I, I'm looking at your page now. There's actually one investment that really struck me as being completely different from, from the rest of them. And, and, and do you know which one I'm talking about? Mm, no, not sure. Okay. There's one called Tushy for ah. people who poop. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story because I was actually, I, I'm a big fan of Howard Stern and they advertise on Howard Stern. I was always like, what, what, what are they talking about? I didn't understand what they're talking about. And, uh, and just the other day I went to the website and uh, it's, it's so funny that I saw it on, on your page because I actually thought it was brilliant marketing what they were doing because they, they got me so interested. I almost bought the thing, but tell me about that. I'm, I'm really interested. Yeah, so um, Tushy is basically a modern bidet company. So rather than having to have a standalone bidet unit like you commonly see in Europe, for example, um, this is just kind of an attachment that you can put on your toilet and it plugs into the water supply, obviously the clean water supply. And um, yeah, it's great. Um, I highly recommend it. The investment came about really because not that I had a particular uh, yearning to invest into the day <laughs> company, but because I knew the, um, the founder, uh, Mickey Agarwal, and she had previously founded another company called Thinks, um, which makes period proof underwear for women. And mm -hmm. she has this mission to really build businesses that are fundamentally breaking down taboos in society. Um, so she started with periods onto toilets um, and, you know, I think she is an incredible entrepreneur, super visionary. She's really a force of nature. 
And um, so in her case, she was really, I was, you know, excited to back her rather than particularly excited about the category. Sure. Um, but frankly, you know, that, that type of investing has actually done quite well for me so far in the sense that um, oftentimes if you find a founder who you think has both the vision and the ability to execute, they can just will these companies into being. And obviously you want to be in a good market. Of course, that's, that's super important. But I do think that the right founder, uh, particularly when they feel strongly about their market and there's good founder market fit, can really, you know, deliver something pretty incredible. I mean, I mean, I, I, I can't say enough about this. I, I've been like scouring their website and I think that they've hit on something really big. I mean, we've got 314 million some bots in, the, uh, in this country alone. I mean, it's a huge market opportunity and I love, I love what they're doing. I, I, I'd love an introduction maybe to the founder. I'd love to talk to her. This, is, this was uh, amazing and I heard on Howard, so I was like, this, this is, has, to, has, to be, has to be interesting. Um, so when you talk to these founders for the first time, I kind of want to deep dive into that. What's your, like, what do you look for? Are you like in depth? Do you, do you ask a lot of questions? Do you connect with them personally? Like what kind of, what kind of interview do you conduct on these first meetings? I mean, I definitely ask a lot of questions about the business, obviously. So, you know, how did they come up with the idea? Why is it that they want to work on this problem in particular? Then obviously diving into more specifics about, you know, the business itself. So, you know, what do their margins look like? What does their industry look like? What is the competitive set like? All that sort of stuff. But I also really try to just understand them as people. So are they the kind of person who is going to persevere when things get really difficult? Do they have some sort of reason for really wanting to build this business that will be able to sustain them when uh, you know things get tough? Are they the right person to be building this particular business? Do they really understand the market? All that sort of stuff. How important is passion about what they're doing? Oh, I think it's extremely important. At the end of the day, what I've seen is that even the best businesses generally take seven to 10 years to build. So that's a very long time. And if you are not passionate about the problem that you're solving, the likelihood is that when something better comes along, you're going to jump ship. And I've seen very few successful outside CEOs be able to come in or, you know, instances in which outside CEOs have been able to come in and really run the business, particularly if the handover has to happen in the first few years of the company. So I absolutely am a fan of, of founder-led companies. And so in that case, it's obviously extremely important that they feel very passionately about the subject matter. Very interesting. And, and do you think that, I mean, I often talk to people and they tell me, you know, I wish I had done this or that in my past life or, uh, you know, I, I have this idea, but I never executed on it. Is there a thing or, or a number of things that seems to hold people back from pursuing their passions? Yeah, I think fear is the biggest one. And oftentimes, you know, the way I think about fear, I think is, is kind of inverted in the sense that I would always rather say, okay, I tried to do this thing and it didn't quite work out and I'll keep kind of massaging it until it, it works in some way and um, then say, oh, you know, I, I could have done that. I really wanted to do that. But ultimately, I never gave it a shot because I was afraid. And I think if you're letting fear drive your decision making, that's going to make for a really unhappy life because you'll constantly have the sort of nagging what if sort of mentality and, and uh, thought in the back of your head, which ultimately is, I think, you know, where a lot of entrepreneurial dreams go to die. 
When you talk to a founder for, for the first time or, or the second time, or as you're going through your due diligence process before you're, you know, as you're thinking about your investment, what's, before you're ready to write a check, I mean, what is, is there like a thing or two that you could put your finger on that's like, yeah, I feel good about this. Is it a gut feeling or is it a, uh, is it maybe looking at the numbers as a combination? What kind of, what makes you pull the trigger at the very end? I mean, I think it's all of the above. So I'm often investing early enough that there's not a lot of numbers to look at, frankly, because, you know, in some cases, the businesses are pre-revenue. They may have a sense of what their unit economics will look like, but certainly not, not a definitive one. So I think oftentimes it really comes down to evaluating the founder and the market that they're in. Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of, of gut feeling, uh, which sounds really wishy-washy, but I've actually read a, a quite a bit of research on this. And it's, it's fascinating because uh, we don't yet fully understand how this works, but I actually believe that we're a lot smarter than we are consciously because what we're actually doing when we have a, you know, a spidey sense or a feeling is that we're picking up on a lot of additional subconscious information. So like micro expressions, mannerisms. So, you know, you can, you can kind of get a feeling if you think someone might be dishonest or overselling themselves. And I've had a number of instances in which I kind of had that feeling and I couldn't necessarily explain it. Um, and then it turned out that the founder was being misleading or in some cases outright fraudulent. And um, so I've, I've really learned to kind of uh, not, not ones in which I ended up uh, not investing, but this kind of came back to me. And so I've ended up learning to really trust my gut in that sense because it, you know, I think it is useful information. Is it those feelings that you talk about, are these usually to the negative or to the positive? Do you get a positive signal uh, often or, as well or no? Oh, yeah, definitely. That's, that's, that's the companies that I invest in. So, so, you, so oftentimes you talk to a founder and uh, you could have either a negative or a positive signal. And I mean, how much does that weigh in your mind, do you think, before you make the investment? Is that like sort of the final nail or could that change your mind from a yes or a no or the other way? I think it's definitely one of the components of it. I mean, by the way, you know, when I say I have a, a feeling about it, it's not like I just look at their picture and I try to divine whether they're a good or, or bad founder. Obviously, I'm talking to them. I'm, answering, I'm asking them questions. I'm getting a sense for how they think about things. Sometimes I'll give them a scenario and ask them how they might handle it. So, you know, I'm, I'm collecting a lot of different kinds of data. Uh, but I think all of that is kind of summarized into how I end up feeling about the founder. Um, and I've certainly had instances in which everything seemed good on paper, but I just, you know, didn't, didn't feel right. And so that ended up pushing things from a yes to a no for me. And, you know, so far I don't really have any regrets in that category. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I just find the, the thinking of investors really fascinating. So I'm trying to, trying to deep dive. I mean, a lot of people are kind of more paper, right? They're looking at the numbers and, and they're not, they don't really have feelings or, or listen to their feelings and other people are the opposite and both could be equally successful at the end of the day. And I, and I completely agree with you. I think that earlier stage investing is perhaps more of a uh, feeling or a connection or a trust in the founders versus later stage because we have a lot more data later in the, in the company's life cycle. Um, so that, that's, that's certainly very, very interesting. Um, if you can think back, I mean, if you're like, talking to yourself some years back and you're just starting out getting into into investing what would you tell your, your younger version of yourself what kind of advice would you give yourself earlier on well uh, I would definitely tell myself to, to trust my gut in a variety of different ways and if anything over time I've learned to kind of 
trust my instincts more. I think when you're when you're very young and you're getting into the field, often it's easy to kind of think yourself out of things or think yourself into things and just kind of try to be so logical and analytical that you remove the human element to it. But actually, I think that's very important because when you're evaluating a founder, like if they make you feel kind of weird, then there's a high likelihood that potential employees or potential customers are all going to have that same feeling. And, um, and that can have enormous implications for the business because particularly if you're investing in the early days, it's almost certain that the product is going to change, you know, hopefully they stay within the same market, but things will shift and there'll probably be pivots. Um, and so you have to really be betting on people. Uh, and so if, if you, if you screw that part up, uh, you're unlikely to have a good outcome. Cool. When you talk to companies, and I imagine you talk to you know a, a number of different companies before you make an investment. Is there like like to kind of keep that all that stuff organized? It could probably get pretty overwhelming, right? Um, when you talk to these uh, the founders and the companies, is there a system that you use to run your day or your operations? I mean, is there something that you kind of you've developed over the years that people might might learn from to keep you well organized and to keep you uh, doing the best that you can? Well, I have certain pieces of software that I use regularly, which certainly help with all of the above. So I use Fantastical Cal uh, for my calendar app, and I'm pretty religious, basically. If it's not on my calendar, it doesn't exist in my sphere of the world. I use Notion to kind of take notes and um, do a number of things. You can embed spreadsheets. They have a variety of different templates, which are, um, I think, very useful for, for different use cases. So I kind of use that as my sort of central operating system. I also spend an enormous amount of time in my email inbox. Um, I use Superhuman for that. I've been uh, using the product for a long time and it saves me so much time. So I'm a big fan of that. What else? Um, that's most of it. Um, I don't know that it's, that's, that it's really helpful, but I do spend a lot of time on Twitter. I think, well, it, it, to correct myself, I think it is useful in the sense that I've had portfolio companies, LPs, um, tons of different kinds of opportunities come from Twitter. So I think it's something that could masquerade as kind of a waste of time, but actually is sort of how, where I get all my news and where I get a lot of my reading from as well. So interesting articles, and uh, research papers, white papers and things like that. Yeah, you've got quite a following on Twitter. I think we could probably do a whole other episode on like Twitter best practices because that alone could get pretty overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's... Uh, it's fun. You know, you can get started and play around with it. It doesn't have to be a whole production, but I think it's a really, really useful tool. And it's often, uh, I think, underrated in that respect. And do, do you tweet for yourself or do you have someone helping you? I tweet for myself. Yeah, it's funny. I've gotten that question a few times. They're like, oh, who runs your, your Twitter, or your social media? <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, I think, I think quite a few people uh, have someone helping out. But, you know, I, I, I have looked at your Twitter feed and it looks, it would, it would be difficult for someone to imitate your style like that. <laughs> Let's do a quick lightning round. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Just give me a short uh, one word or a short answer if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, most interesting DeFi company? Probably Dharma. Price of Bitcoin at the end of this year? 10,000. Favorite book? The Overstory. By? Richard Powers. Awesome. Um, so, so Ariane, what's, it's been a fascinating conversation. What's, what's next? I mean, what are you thinking about for tomorrow? What spaces are you looking at? What, what's next for you? Continuing to spend a lot of time in the uh, kind of crypto and blockchain space. I'm very excited about what's happening in the gaming universe these days. I think that's probably going to be one of the 
categories that helps usher a lot of new users into the crypto space as a whole. At the end of the day, um, you know, the, the gamer DNA, I think, fit, fits very well with crypto because people oftentimes have um, experience with kind of uh, the idea of in-game or in-app currencies. They're often more technically savvy and a number of, of other reasons. So I think that's going to be where the next wave of crypto users comes from on the consumer side. So, um, yeah, excited to see some of the evolution happening over there. In the DeFi space, of course, correct? No, in gaming. Right, right, right. But you're, are, you, are you still excited about decentralized finance as well as gaming? Or are you kind of thinking oh, about... Oh, no, of course. No, no, no. Very excited about DeFi. I was just kind of, you know, <laughs> we, we talked about that. So I was just mentioning yeah. another area I've been looking at. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's, that's extremely interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really insightful and interesting speaking with you, Ariana. Yeah, thanks for having me.